So as we get back into these into Revelation 19 and 20, two things I just want to remind us of first off is, is, is first, Revelation does not tell us anything new. Okay, even now as we're talking about these visions of, of the assuredness that Jesus wins. We're not being told anything new. And then also, we're not, we're not looking at this, we're not looking at the book of Revelation as the crystal ball of the New Testament. That if we search hard enough, we can find out exactly how everything comes to pass. That's not the point of this book. The point of this book is that it is an illustrated discipleship manual. It uses images to show us what the reality of God is so that we can make decisions about who we're going to be as a result. If we are the followers of Christ, these images are designed to change how we live. Okay, And so I want us to keep those two things in front of us so that when we start talking about thousand-year reigns and we start talking about lakes of fire and we start talking about heavenly battles, we don't lose sight of why all this is here. It's here to remind us what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And very simply, to be a disciple of Jesus is to live with this reality in front of us. Everything will end except for the reality of Jesus. And in the end, he endures all, he conquers all, he is before all, and in him everything holds together, and Jesus wins. Let's pray. No, I, 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 could, I could stop there and just say, like, that's it. That's all you need to know. In fact, I, I love that, that um, Daryl Johnson, one of the commentators that I've been drawing heavily on through this series, at the beginning he has this story about these seminary students that are playing pickup basketball in, in, a, in a gym, and the janitor of the gym keeps coming over and kind of reading through the Bible out of their, next to them while they're doing their thing. And one of the seminary students comes over to him and says, hey, so uh, what you reading? And he says, oh, I'm reading through Revelation. And the guy goes, oh, all right. And, uh, and he says, okay, well, do you understand everything about it? And he goes, oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, so the seminary student kind of feeling real full of himself is like, oh, really? Okay, so tell me what it's about. And he, he's like, it's a secret. Come here. Whispers it in his ear. He's like, Jesus is going to win. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, I mean, we could go that simply with it, but even in the complexity of Revelation, don't lose that simplicity. Everything about everything that has led up to this point, everything about the letters to the churches, everything about the vision of the throne, everything about the vision of 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 the terrible, fantastic beasts that rise up to challenge. All of, the, all of the, the, the plagues, all of the wrath, all of the hope, all of the everything. It's all hanging on this one thing. Jesus is going to win. This is not in question. If it is in question in your life, that is why revelation exists, is to take you up out of your situation, put you into the situation of the throne room of heaven, and remind you that that is not a point of contention as far as God is concerned. And that is not, a, that is not even a point of contention as far as evil is concerned. 
That is not even a point of tension of, of tension or contention as far as this counterfeit trinity that we've been outlining of, of the dragon and the beast from the sea that is, you know, like military or economic or imperial power or the beast of the earth that is kind of like this false religious, false prophet, religious power. Even those things, there's no contention among them that Jesus is going to win. Remember back into, into Revelation 12 and 13, the dragon is enraged and goes off to enslave humanity. Why? Because he knows his time is short. Nobody's surprised by anything that happens here in Revelation chapter 19 and 20. Nobody in the heavenlies is surprised. The only person that's astonished is John. It's good to know. It's good to know that nothing that's happening here is a surprise. So let's walk through what's going on. First off, we have this fourfold hallelujah. Babylon has fallen. The, the, the stronghold that anybody would put their, their, their minds on besides Jesus is gone. And there is this sense of, of saying, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, salvation to our God, praise the Lord. And we have some things in here that kind of make us a little bit antsy because we have this hallelujah, the smoke is rising up from the dead city forever. And you're like, well, that kind of sounds like it's, you know, gloating over the dead, okay? I want us to be really, really clear. That's not what's happening here. Why are these hallelujahs being given? Because the people that were oppressed are being liberated. You and I have to go there because, I mean, we don't, we don't spend a lot of time being oppressed. Let's just be honest. We may spend a little bit of time being inconvenienced now and again, but we are not in the same situation as these churches, okay? We're, well, sorry, we're in the same situation as some of these churches. We may be a whole lot more like Laodicea or Thyatira or some of those that have kind of compromised that have, that have given concessions in order to have comfort or maybe in danger of doing that. I, don't, I, I can't know your hearts, but I can say that, that we probably read this more with a sense of foreboding of like, wow, I may need to examine my motives and I need to examine what I'm doing and why I'm doing it rather than, say, reading it like Philadelphia, who's, who's just under the boot of the pressure of the empire and is staying true to Christ Jesus because for them, hallelujah is a breath of fresh air. It's, it's, it's like a sigh of relief as the weight gets lifted off of them. Oh, hallelujah. Okay. Because they have been judged guilty by the court of the nations. They've been judged guilty by Caesar and have paid for it with their economic prosperity and with with their social connections and with their family connections and even with their own lifeblood, they've, they've had to pay for it. But now the court of heaven has come in and reversed the judgment and says, no, 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 you're not guilty. My blood has made you innocent, says the lamb. And I judge to be guilty the powers that told you that you were not following the truth. And that's what this hallelujah is about. It's, it's, it's saying praise to God because he is writing what is wrong. Praise to God because he is going to finish what he starts. Praise God because the things that have pushed down on us will not do that forever. And so if you're in, if you're in that situation, 
if you think of any of the things that, that really do press down on your soul, I need to let you, you, there's good news for you here. There's hope and encouragement in this, in this chapter of Revelation. Those things will not continue to do that forever. They cannot because they will not win. Jesus wins. At the same time, the things that you have bartered with and, can, and made concessions in your life with and the things that you've kind of like tried to like put one foot in the inhabitants of the earth and one foot in the kingdom of heaven, if you've been trying to play that game, that will not last either. That is going to pass away. And so hallelujah can either be an encouragement for you or hallelujah can be a challenge for you. Salvation belongs to our God. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. And if that wasn't clear enough, then John gets this this message that that we used as our key verse here in in chapter 19, verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. And then there's kind of this parenthesis here that, that Joan kind of put it in class, the brackets, right? This fine linen, the, these wedding clothes, are the righteous acts of the saints. The things that we do matter. The sacrifices that we make matter. The, 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 the times where we say yes to God and no to the things that we might desire that would be in our own self-interest, but not produce the kingdom of righteousness, those matter. And here comes the bride of Christ, restored and dressed in her wedding clothes. You and me, dressed in our acts of righteousness. Now, I remember... Not much about my wedding day. Not much. Okay, I'll just be honest. One, because I was young and dumb. Um, okay. Not, not where she's concerned, but I'm just, I, this is more just my state of mind in general as, as, as a college student, okay? All right. But you know what I remember? I Forever fused in my mind is the doors to the back of Chapel on the Hill opening and the first time I saw Nicole. And her hair was done up in this really amazing type of thing that I've never seen before. And she's dressed in this beautiful dress. And everybody took pictures of her. And one person, because they're smart, turned around and took a picture of me. Okay, and let me do my best to, to recreate the, the look that was on my face, okay? It was this. Okay, I, like, I was absolutely putting dumbstruck. I mean, like, if you'd asked me to, like, even speak, it would not have come out in a complete sentence. It would have been like, huh? <laughs> you know, like, that, that would have been it, Okay. This is the culmination of everything. This is what frames everything that's happening here. Okay? One, realize everything that we've been anticipating, everything that we've been hoping for, everything that we've been longing for 
in Jesus is going to come to pass. And everything that we are, the choices that we are making now are preparing us in such a way because our desire is for Jesus to look at us and go, And the promise that, that's, that that is how he sees us. Like, that is amazing to me. Because I'll be honest, I don't clean up that well for Jesus. But that he still looks at me and goes, Oh, wow. I have waited for you. I am enamored with you. Hmm. This is a book of encouragement. This is a book of hope. The thing is, is that there's two feasts. And, and, and we can't forget that because, because, again, like, this is the reality of things, okay? What we're, what we're shooting for, what we're desiring is, is, is to be the bride of Christ at the wedding feast of the Lamb. Blessed is the one who is invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The problem is there's two feasts. And this again, this is not anything new. This is, this is, what, this is what Jesus talks about in, in Matthew chapter 22 when he talks about there was a father who would, and a bridegroom And they send out a messenger. Does this start to sound like the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit at all? Okay. And they say, hey, it's time for the wedding feast. It's time. My my son is being united with his bride. It's time. Everybody who comes, come. And all of the people, depending on how you read, you know, because there's different. There's different versions of this parable in the gospel. They either make all of these excuses about things that are more important and they don't come. Or some of them actually fight against and try to overthrow the guy and his son. Which obviously means that they're not excited to come and, you know, be at the supper, right? And so they're like, okay, you know what? Scratch that. New plan. Everybody that I was planning on inviting, forget them. Go out into the streets. I want you to find the crippled. I want you to find the lame. I want you to find the blind. I want you to find the beggars and the penniless and the widows and, and, and everybody that everybody else forgets. And I want you to bring them in. And I want you to dress them up. Can you imagine that? Just, just for a moment, okay? Let's walk down the streets of downtown Victoria. And all the people that you usually ignore, let's, let's not ignore them now. And those are the ones that Jesus goes and he finds and he brings in to the marriage supper. And, and, and now imagine like the homeless guy going like, whoa, tuxedo. This is awesome. And all those people that were going hungry sitting down to rich food. And it's warm. And it doesn't end. It's beautiful, right? That's one feast that's happening. But there's two feasts that are happening. 
verse 17 of chapter 19. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun. Okay. Not even going to try to deal with that one. And he cried out with a loud voice, calling to all the birds which fly in the midheavens, come assemble for the great supper of God so that you can eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all humanity, both, both free and slave, small and great. Hmm. Well, that's not as encouraging. Again, there's, there's an encouragement and there's a challenge here. There's another feast that happens, and those who thought that they were going to be the guests of honor end up being on the menu. And why is that? Because they put their trust in something that will not last. That despite all of the reality being to the contrary, they said... I know Jesus could be Lord, but I'm going to hedge my bets on something else. Or I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to kind of put my trust in Jesus, but I'm also going to put my trust in this. I need, you know, I'm going to hedge my bets. I'm going to put myself in two places here. There is no such thing as putting yourself in two places as far as the kingdom of heaven is concerned. You're either marked with the lamb. You're either, you either have the seal of the true Messiah or you have the mark of the counterfeit Messiah. Like, that's really the only options you got. Again, Revelation's not telling us anything new. It's just telling us that those are truth and that you can't get away with it. You can't. I can't. What I do matters. What I do that is righteous matters for Christ. What I do that is self-serving and does not bring the kingdom of heaven matters because it puts me outside of the wedding feast of the Lamb. See, just like that. Now, when I say that, when I say that it's, it's, it's a given thing, I want us to just think about chapter 19. Because there's been all of this, this setup, you know, like we even, we kind of passed over it a couple of chapters ago, but there's, we, there's this word Armageddon, okay, that, that we know, okay? It, 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 literally, it just means the mountain near Megiddo, which is kind of funky because there is no mountain near Megiddo. Megiddo's in a big, like, bowl, plain area, okay? Um, and so it's kind of like, well, what is that? It's either something symbolic or possibly the, the closest marker that you could think of would be the mountain where Elijah faces off against the prophets of Baal and God, you know, shows up and does business, okay? But really, it's like we're thinking of this as a, as a, as a spiritual place, not an actual, like, massive battle. But let's just, let, let's just assume for a moment that the kings of the earth and all the powers and all the everybody is gathering at this mountain at Megiddo, to go do battle with Jesus. And then I saw heaven open, verse 11, and behold, a white horse and the one who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and he wages war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many crowns, and he has a name written upon him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in the fine linen, again, the same kind of fine linen that clothes the bride, 
close the followers. But the funny thing is, 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 is warriors don't wear fine linen to battle. This isn't the garment of a bunch of warriors. He's being followed by a group of priests. You can already tell this is not going to be a normal battle. They're following him on white horses. From his mouth comes the sharp sword. Again, the testimony of Jesus. So that with it, he may strike down the nations, his opponents, those that have gathered, and rule them with a rod of iron. All this is like back in Isaiah. This is just a culmination of the messianic passages. He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, and on his robe and thigh he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. So here he comes. Verse 19, I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and all of their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Are you ready for the battle? Here we go. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence. The end. What? Come on. Like, I'm expecting some, like, Lord of the Rings, like, you know, massive, you know, full Frodo. You know, you know like, let's go. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen because it already happened Whose blood is the robe of the risen Jesus dipped in? It's not, the, it's not the blood of his enemies. It's his blood. Why is, it, why is his robe on him? It is the standard. Like he rides out and shows everybody, um, actually, we already fought the battle and I won, Remember? And the sword that comes out of his mouth that that defeats, in verse 21, the rest were overcome or even killed with the sword which comes out of his mouth, out of the mouth of him who sits on the horse. It's the testimony of Jesus. It's it's right back here in in our passage, okay, in verse 10, okay? I am a fellow servant of yours and brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Not the spirit of foretelling the future, because we already know the future. It's Prophecy is telling the truth of God into the situation of mankind, of, human, of humanity. And the reality is, is that all Jesus has to come out. The, the only blood that gets shed in this war is the blood that Jesus already shed for himself. And the only thing needed to overcome everybody else is for Jesus to speak the testimony. No, 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 no. I am the one who holds all the power now. It was given to me by the Father. You know it. I know it. Everybody knows it. And I've already paid the price. So there is no battle. It's over. You're done. And they are. And all the rest of this becomes aftermath. I'm not saying it's not important. But again, one, it's not necessarily linear, but but two, it's all aftermath. It already has been. Everything that's going to happen is just the outpouring of, of what Jesus has already done on the cross and what he has done in rising from the dead. And we need to take our cues from that as people of God. Is there a binding and a loosening of the powers that try to deceive humanity? Yes. 
will that power the devil, Satan, the great dragon, all of that that we see in verse 20, is it going to last? No, it's not. There's all kinds of discussion on how this, I mean, one, thousand, the, 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 if you remember from our studies, the word thousand, that is a symbolic thing. It is not a literal thousand thing because there haven't been any literal thousands in the entire book of Revelation. Why would we have a literal thousand now? doesn't make any sense. But two, there's, there's all kinds of thoughts, right? Like, are we in the thousand years now? Is the thousand years still coming? You know, we throw around big words like premillennialism and, and, and postmillennialism and amillennialism. And me personally, I'm kind of a panmillennialist. I just think it's all going to pan out in the end. Um, I'm not saying that those things don't matter, but at the, end of the, at the end of the day, I don't think that the people who are like, see, I was right, we were already in the thousand years, are going to like high five, you know, because the people over that thought we weren't there yet are wrong. Everybody's just going to be really glad that we got there. Everybody's just going to be really, really glad that the accuser's gone. And there is going to be a judgment. I'm not going to say that there's not. I mean, it's, it's very, very clear here. And we can make a case, which I would, I would really like to make, that, that, that the eternal fire of eternal torment, if you look in chapter 20, okay, chapter 20, verse 10, and the, and, the, and the devil, the accuser who deceived all of them, was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet have also been thrown, and they will be tormented day and night forever and forever. Okay, I'm not going to deny it's there, and I'm not going to deny that there's eternal torment. What I am going to say is, who specifically is it for? It is for the counterfeit trinity that tried to set itself up against the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Why is there eternal torment? I don't know. Is it, I mean, is it because they've set themselves up against, they've really been the, the power that has set themselves up against God and this is their consequence? Maybe. Is it because they're eternal beings? Maybe. I don't know. All I know is that it's over. They don't get to do anything anymore. Okay? And later on, then we have the judgment at the throne of God, which Jesus himself talks about. And there, and there the reckoning comes. And you can't hide behind anything anymore. But here's the thing. If you're spending a lot of time worried about whether your name is written in the book of life or not, I wouldn't be that worried. Because frankly, from what I see, if, you, if, if your name wasn't written in the book of life, you wouldn't be thinking about that at all. I'm not saying you get a hall pass to do whatever you want. Obviously not. Our righteous acts matter because they prepare us for the wedding feast of the Lamb. But I don't, want us to, I don't want us to read Revelation and live in a constant state of spiritual anxiety. Where am I going? God's position has always been to try and bring humanity to himself. And even judgment, even torment, even these things, these things that we hate talking about, all of it is about redirecting humanity back toward God, redirecting the children back toward the Father. If I'm acting as a righteous dad at all, which I don't always, 
But if I'm acting as a righteous dad at all, any discipline that I give to my kids is to try and bring them back into relationship with our family and bring them back into right living. Our Heavenly Father does that perfectly. I do that imperfectly, right? And so I will say for me personally, although I can't know because I've never been there, the idea that eternal torment is for humanity makes no sense because it doesn't square with any of the reasons that God does discipline or even gives punishment. Now, does that mean that there's not a final end where God says, fine, you wanted to live life without me, and even with everything, you still lived life without me? Okay, I will give you what you want. Here's life without me. Well, it's, it's very, very clear that that still happens too. Verse 14, this is the second death. Okay? Well, that's still going to happen. But what does that have to do with us being disciples? Does it mean that being a disciple is living in a constant state of angst of whether I'm of whether my salvation is secure or not, or whether there's a lake of fire waiting for me? No, that's not the point of this. The point of this is Jesus wins, so cling to Jesus. Move toward him more every day. Come closer to your bridegroom every day. There is encouragement and there is hope. If anything, I think this passage here for the disciple is to say, look around you at all of the people who don't know this reality of Jesus. Do you love them enough to let them know that the things that they're clinging to will not last? Even if it costs you some of your credibility, even if people laugh at you, even if it makes life difficult, even if the way that you live involves sacrifices that make life more difficult as a result, do you love the world around you enough to let them know that this is that we're not fooling with this stuff? That, that there really is a choice that needs to be made. Do we love the people around us enough to say, there's a wedding feast and I really want you to be there. I really want you to be at the wedding feast of the lamb rather than the other feast where you're on the menu. The hallelujah is not the righteous people standing, waving, you know, like their flags gloating over the fallen. The hallelujah is giving the praise and glory to God because he reigns and invite and, and saying, come with us to the wedding feast of the Lamb. So what will it be for us? Hmm? I, I mean, I, I, I pray, I, I, again, I, just, I pray there's so many different places for this to go and, and, and there's so many different things I haven't even really touched on in here. But at the end of the day, Jesus wins. Let that encourage your heart. Jesus wins, and the things that are not right will not last. Let that challenge you, because there is nothing that you can put your hope in that is going to last except Christ Jesus. And let it spur you on 
to be messengers of Christ Jesus because there is a whole world out there that does not know this reality all around you. If we love them, we will let them know because we have been loved. Somewhere, someone, somebody, somewhere at some point in your life, you're here because somebody told you the truth of the gospel of Christ. And now he has given you the message to go and say, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And guess what? You've got an invitation. Will you accept his invitation? Right? So let us worship. Let us sing praises. But moreover, let us be motivated to go out into the streets just like the the father of the bridegroom commands his servants. Go out and let them know that it's time to come in because the wedding feast of the Lamb is coming. Amen?